This is the Baymaw Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we look at the second letter to the Corinthians and see their continued struggle to live out the gospel in their unique context. Yeah, we should have a pretty brief conversation today. A quick little jaunt through 2 Corinthians here. Brief overview of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. We'll cover a few odds and ends and try to give us a hook to hang our understanding of the letter on. But uh, uh, first of all, I have a couple fun observations about the Corinthian letters. First of all, uh, this isn't actually Paul's second letter to the Corinthians for all the Bible nerds out there that kept probably freaking out that I hadn't pointed that out already. Quit calling it the second letter. Uh, This isn't Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. It's at the very least his third, as you might see by examining. uh, Let's see here. Do you have 1 Corinthians 5.9? Yeah. Okay. 1 Corinthians 5.9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Wrote past tense. Yeah, absolutely. There's a letter we don't have. Uh, so what we actually have is probably, at the very least, Second Corinthians and Third Corinthians. Don't you wish we had the first letter? I find it fun to think about my uh, teacher, Ray, used to always joke about, that's the letter. That's the one where uh, uh, Paul talks about all the controversial stuff very clearly in that letter. What to do with, exactly what to do with women and Gender and sexuality and all those things are finally solved in that missing link of the Corinthian series. But perhaps there was even another letter. Perhaps. Look at this passage from Second Corinthians 7. Go and read that to me. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. He did write to shame them. I mean, let's remember that. <laughs> in some cases. In some cases, not. Right. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong, nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. So is this a reference to the missing letter of uh, 1 Corinthians, 1st 1 Corinthians? Was it a reference to what we know uh, as, as 1 Corinthians? It certainly could be. First uh, Corinthians was a tough letter of confrontation. Could it be something else? At any rate, it appears that the people of Corinth are growing, changing, and repenting. This passage has always given me great hope that when I feel like the church around me is doomed, things can change, even in Corinth. But another fun conversation in Second Corinthians is about Paul's famous thorn in the flesh. Go ahead and read me the passage about Paul's thorn in the flesh here. I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it is in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I've actually heard people suggest that this could be Paul himself, like he's talking about himself uh, it'd be a common. It doesn't seem to be a tool that Paul employs, but it would be common in his day to not refer to himself. Like it's kind of like the whole, uh, I have a friend who, 
I know a man who was caught up into heaven. Could this be Paul himself? Maybe, maybe not. Although he really wants to emphasize that he doesn't know whether it was in the body or apart from the body. Correct. Absolutely. That is important. I was like, did I just jump back a line on accident? No, that's actually in there twice. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would not be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness." Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. All right, so there are many different theories about what what was this thorn in the flesh? What was it? One scholar has suggested that Paul's thorn was blindness. Uh... He did tell the Galatians, uh, read me Galatians 4.15. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Uh, Why does Paul say that? Is this thorn eye problems? Did he have blindness? They would have torn out their eyes and given them to him. Paul does seem to struggle with blindness in his story. Is that his thorn in the flesh? My teacher suggested it was a wife who had deserted him. While this theory is often discredited on a cursory reading of some proof texts, I think there might be more credence to this theory once we look closer at those statements from a Jewish perspective. I say all that so you don't have to send me the emails and point out all those proof texts. Like They're there, and yet when, I th- when you look deeper, I think actually they may not be saying what we think we're saying. Many have said it's clear that Paul is single, uh, but his statements aren't quite as direct as they appear, and we would assume that any student of Gamaliel would have to have been married in the Jewish world. Uh, basically a prerequisite for any portion of uh, rabbinical training. If Paul studied under Gamaliel, he, he, he almost certainly had to be married. Is that because Gamaliel was married and he's no. trying to follow in his steps? Or? No, rabbinically, um, uh, the first commandment of Torah is be fruitful and multiply. So rabbinically, the argument is, how can you be a rabbi? How can you teach about the word and not follow the very first commandment? And so before becoming a rabbi, you almost always had to get married first. Jesus, obviously, is this odd, odd example um, for lots of reasons. Jesus obviously isn't married, which is why whenever Christians freak out at the idea of Jesus being married, from a Jewish perspective, that's not nearly as... They actually have more question about why Jesus isn't married than why he... Or, yeah, why he isn't married than why he is Married, so, but we're certainly digressing at this point. Uh, Did Paul's wife desert him when he started following Jesus? Has Paul prayed that God would release him from his marriage and he doesn't feel like God has? Interesting options. I want to consider what question, Brent? Uh, What do we find in the text? Ah, is it in the text? I have looked into the text and noticed a consistent theme of thorn in the side being connected to the Gentiles and pagan nations. Examples of this would be like uh, Numbers thirty three fifty five, Joshua twenty three thirteen, and a handful of others. But those are some of the two best ones in my mind. Has Paul asked God to release him from his call to the Gentiles? I consider this highly unlikely based on the way that Paul talks about his call elsewhere. But it's always fun to consider. 
But alas, what's the big idea of 2 Corinthians? It is for me, at least as I teach my students, the idea of Paul's apostleship. One of the things he seems to struggle with in Corinth is their respect of his authority, or lack thereof, as an apostle. This isn't the first time Paul has had to address it, but it comes up here yet again. Go ahead and read me from uh, whatever chapter we're in there. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you when away, I beg you. That when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be toward some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. You are judging by appearances. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. So even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters. For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Oh, that's a rough evaluation. <laughs> <laughs> such people such people should realize that when that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. Yeah. Paul. Mm. Watch out, Corinth, yeah. I'm coming for you. Yeah, yes. Uh, Paul's not done. He's going to talk more about this in the next chapter. Go ahead and read us the next little section from uh, chapter 11. I do not think I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way, and will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. So finally, Paul closes this chapter by saying his uh, resume and credentials of apostleship have been solidified in suffering. He has all the pedigree and the Jewish background a teacher could want, and yet he will not boast in those things. Only in the fact that he has followed Jesus in the way of self-sacrifice. As he begged them in the last letter, he asked them to quit propping themselves up in the wrong credentials. Look for the things that matter and follow Jesus. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, he invites them to imitate him as he imitates Christ. This is what I always find to be the challenging thing for our culture to meditate on and let marinate. In a postmodern and Protestant world that rejects spiritual authority of all kinds, I think there are some interesting words. To, these, these words here are interesting words to consider. Yet again, I wonder if we have much in common with the Corinthian church. And while I rarely teach on this because I do find myself in a position of spiritual authority, and it always feels like a slight uh, conflict of interest, I do know as a person who sits on the edge of the millennial generation how much I bristle against the idea of spiritual authority. We have all seen the ways in which spiritual authority has been abused and corrupted. We've heard the horror stories and have been appalled at the headlines. Such leadership should never be submitted to and will find their representation of God judged by the one they claim to represent. 
Such abuse, abuses of people, abuse of authority, abuse of God's call, is something God takes very seriously and Jesus denounces very adamantly. But I also find myself challenged by scriptures like 2 Corinthians. I find myself with bathwater in hand, needing to stop and make sure the proverbial baby is not being thrown out with it. I pray God might give us all spiritual leaders who look like Jesus. People, flawed and sinful as they might be, who help us see Jesus and the love of God more clearly. People who live life with a passion and a surrender to God's counterintuitive kingdom way. I pray they would be humble, merciful, patient, kind, good sufferers. And when God grants us that kind of leadership, I pray we would follow. I pray we would respect. The end of Paul's lament, he gives one final plea, and it may be one to consider at least for a few of us. And I know I'm on that list. I'll close with these words. I might give a couple parting thoughts here, but let me close our study of Second Corinthians here. Examine yourselves, Paul says, to see that same call, just like First Corinthians, examine yourself. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong, not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, and even though we may seem to have failed, for we cannot do anything against the truth, for only, but only for the truth. We are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong, and our prayer is that you may be fully restored. This is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in, in, in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up and not tearing you down. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be one of mind. Live in peace. The God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All God's people here send their greetings. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Uh, let's see here. One passing thought, Brent. Uh, I know that there will be people out there that are like, you did all of Corinthians and completely gave one passing comment to spiritual gifts. And that's true. I did that on purpose. Um, we have a very wide, a very wide listenership that listens to our podcast. We have people from uh, uh, Reformed backgrounds. We have people from Catholic backgrounds. We have people from, uh, we have a very large uh, contingency of listenership from the Stone Campbell, Independent Christian Churches, Churches of Christ, the International Church of Christ. We have a very large group of listeners from there. That's probably maybe our biggest representation. Um, But we do have, uh, we do have people, uh, we have some Pentecostal listeners uh, that listen. Um, some of our Pentecostal brothers and sisters. We have people from uh, uh, from different churches and church plants that are connected with Bethel uh, in Reading, um, the provocative Bethel, and they listen to our podcast. And I've met some of them, and they're really good people. And um, there are things we don't necessarily uh, see eye to eye when it comes to spiritual gifts. But um, yeah, I, I'm not going to sit here on a podcast and make a bunch of calls and decisions about what is and what isn't. And here's what I believe. Here's what I believe about spiritual gifts. I believe in the scriptures, it's really clear that something was going on in Corinth because Paul talks a lot about speaking in tongues, about the miraculous gifts. Uh, he, he tells them in Corinth that, that God's doing something special and unique in Corinth with the spiritual gifts. Um, and that, that same thing is not going on in Rome. It's not going on in Philippi. It's not going on in Colossae. It's not going on in Ephesus. Paul doesn't talk about it anywhere else but, but Corinth. And so 
there's something special going on in Corinth. So who am I to say that today there's not something special going on somewhere else, whether it's Redding, California, or, or any other Pentecostal brotherhood or sisterhood church that I, who am I to say that God's not moving in some other corner? Um, but I would also look at the scriptures and say, but it's also not the norm, not in the New Testament, not in, and so, and so I see that reflected in our body today. And, and we all know, we all know that spiritual, the miraculous spiritual gifts have been abused in lots of situations, in lots of cases. They've been surrounded with bad theology. Uh, my most Pentecostal friends will, will be the first to admit that. We all know that. Um, uh, but, but who am I to say that, that? Does that then therefore mean that all of it is discredited, that God's not, the Holy Spirit's not doing any of those things? Ah, far be it from me. Far be it from me to make that kind of call. I assume, I assume that God's doing things that I don't understand. I assume that the Holy Spirit's doing things that I've never experienced. I assume that. And I also assume that it's not happening in a lot of other places, just like it was in the New Testament. Um, just like it was and it wasn't in the New Testament. And yes, there are wonderful things in all these books about, uh, uh, in all these Corinthian letters, all two of them. There's wonderful instructions about how to use those gifts appropriately and some rules and some guidelines. And yeah, it's, it's, it's all there. Okay, cool. Cool. Is the Holy Spirit doing that in your church? Oh, cool. Awesome. Good. Um, yeah, it's good. I celebrate that. I hope that they will celebrate uh, the fact that God's not doing that in my congregation. It's cool. How's that for a... Yeah, that's fun. Do you think that saved emails, or do you think that's going to get you even more emails? Oh, boy, I didn't think about that. Uh, (laughs) Who knows? I love you all. I love all our listeners. And uh, the body of Christ is unique and as diverse as it was in Corinth and all throughout the New Testament. The scripture definitely speaks to to that. Yeah, I celebrate that. And I am with you. I will not be the one to decide what God is or isn't doing. Does Kenneth Bailey address uh, spiritual gifts in in Paul through Middle Eastern eyes? Good question. Uh, I have read so much I cannot remember. That was a long time ago. All right, well, we'll recommend the book again all the same. Uh, yep. and, and, you know, it'd probably a good read whether whether it addresses it specifically or not. Absolutely. Check it out. All right. Well, thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll be back again soon. Mm-hmm.